Luke 21, verses 34 through 38. This is the very Word of God. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place, and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple. But at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. That is the reading of God's word. Let us pray and ask for his blessing upon the preaching of his word here this morning. Father God, we do come before you this morning humbly asking that you would be with us as we hear your word preached, Father. Pray that you would be with me, that my words would be faithful and true and clear. And Father, we pray that you would be with each one of us, that we would receive your word as it truly is, as the very word of God. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his name's sake. Amen. As I said, these verses are the conclusion. They are Jesus' summary to the discourse that he has been having with his disciples on the Mount of Olives. And as we've seen, as we've studied this passage, the the primary subject that Jesus has been dealing with throughout the entire discourse is the coming judgment of God. A judgment that was previewed, so to speak, in the destruction of Jerusalem in the first century. But a judgment that Jesus says will come upon all on the face of the earth at the end of the age when Jesus returns in a cloud with power and great glory. Last Sunday in the previous paragraph, verses 29 through 33, we we heard Jesus say that, that everything that he has been saying is certain. He's not speculating. He's not guessing. He is telling us what is going to happen. All that he has described will surely come to pass. Heaven and earth may pass away, he says, but my words will never pass away. In the verses before us this morning, here at the very end, Jesus follows up that statement of certainty with an application. Because there is a day of judgment coming, and because the coming of that day is certain, Jesus says, this is what you must do. This is how you must live. First, you must not let your hearts be weighed down. You you must not let your hearts become heavy with what he calls dissipation and, and drunkenness and the cares of this life. And second, you must stay awake. You must stay awake, and more than that, you must pray, asking God for strength to escape all the things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son. So Jesus gives us something not to do, something to avoid at all costs, and he gives us something to do, something to devote ourselves to as we wait with eager expectation for the advent of that coming day. And he attaches to this dual injunction, this this what not to do and this what to do, he he attaches to that a warning. You see it there when he says, Do this, lest that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. So we have something to avoid, 
something to do and a warning, it says, if you don't, there will be consequences. I want us to consider that warning first. Look again at verse 33. Jesus uh, says to us, or not verse 33, I'm sorry, look again at verse 34. Jesus says to us, Watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. In other words, if we fail to watch ourselves, if we fail to to keep watch, and if we allow our hearts to be weighed down, then that day, the, the coming day of judgment, then that day will come upon us suddenly. It will come upon us unexpectedly. It will come upon us like a trap closing on its victim. Jesus is saying that if we do not watch ourselves, we won't be ready. We'll be caught off guard, and as a result, we will be destroyed. If we don't watch ourselves, for us, that day will be a day of darkness and not light. If we do not watch ourselves, the day that is coming will be a day of judgment and not salvation. That's clearly what Jesus means when he, when he says that the day will come like a, a trap. The images of the traps used by hunters to, to take their prey, the, the trap that captures a bird or the trap that captures some other animal. Jesus is saying That if we allow our hearts to be weighed down, if we allow them to become heavy with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life, then we will lose our lives just as an animal taken by a hunter. I want us to think for a moment about the implication of Jesus giving such a warning to his disciples. Because that is who Jesus is is talking to. Remember, it was Jesus' disciples who were admiring the temple. Luke doesn't tell us that, but we read it in the other Gospels. And it was Jesus' disciples who asked about the, the timing and the signs of the coming desolations. And it is to Jesus' disciples that he has been talking throughout this entire discourse. We we see this clearly, for example, in verse 28. Notice what Jesus says. Jesus says to those whom he is addressing, For you that day will be a day of redemption. So Jesus is is talking to those who anticipate that day as a day of salvation. He's talking to his disciples. And yet, he warns them. He warns them that if they do not keep watch of themselves, and if they allow their hearts to be weighed down, then that day will come upon them like a trap. That is, if they allow their hearts to be weighed down, that day will be for them a day of judgment. How do we make sense of this? What are we we to do with this seemingly strange juxtaposition? To some, this clearly implies that that a person may lose his or her salvation. A, A person may be saved today, but not finally saved on that day. A believer, a a true disciple may do something or not do something, as the case may be. They may do something between now and the end that will cause them to lose their salvation. Today they're saved, 
but maybe not tomorrow, or maybe not a year from now, or maybe not on that day. This is, this is what some people see as the, the clear implication of Jesus giving a warning like this to his disciples. Maybe you've been taught that. Maybe you believe that this morning. I want you to hear me say this morning that that's not what this passage is teaching. Depending on how familiar you are with Trinity's doctrinal, doctrinal commitments, and I know there's a, probably a broad spectrum in the room this morning, you may or may not know that we hold to something that has traditionally been called the perseverance of the saints. You may have heard that term before. And what that means is that, that we believe that all those to whom God has granted faith and repentance, all those whom, whom God has, has caused to be born again, all those will persevere in faith and repentance until the end. If God has granted you faith, and if he has granted you new life by that faith, then he will keep you in that faith until the end. And that means that a believer, a true believer, will, will never lose their salvation. Because God will keep them. The God who, who graciously granted them faith and repentance in the first place will keep them in faith and repentance until that day. We believe this is the clear and consistent teaching of the Scripture. We're, we're told that Jesus will not lose any of those given to him by the Father. We are told that all those whom the Father foreknew, all those will be glorified. We're told that Jesus will bring to completion the good work that he has begun in all those in whom he has begun it. There will be no abandoned projects. There will be no unfinished works. You, you may have those around your house. I have more than I care to admit. Projects that I began that I figured I couldn't finish for one reason or another, usually frustration. But God doesn't have those. God doesn't leave his good works unfinished. He brings to completion all that he begins. And Jesus will not lose any of those who have been given to him. This is the clear and consistent testimony of Scripture. And therefore, Jesus' warning cannot mean that it's possible for a disciple to lose his or her salvation. But if that's not what Jesus is saying, what, what does he mean? What, what is he getting at? Why give the warning? What I want you to see in Jesus' warning is this. I want you to see that Jesus is warning those who stand before him as professing disciples, and he, and he warns them to keep watch of themselves because he understands that there is a real possibility of a disciple's profession proving false of a disciple not keeping watch, of allowing his heart to be weighed down and thus proving, to use Paul's phrase, that his faith was vain. It was mere words. You see, the perseverance of the saints doesn't mean once saved, always saved, at least not the way that that term is usually used in, in our cultural context. Because when I've heard someone say that, when I've heard someone speak about being once saved, always saved, what it, what it usually means is that because of some past action, 
because of a prayer that was said or an aisle that was walked or a decision that was made, because of some past action, I am now guaranteed salvation regardless of what I do between now and then. Because of something I did in the past, my future is secure, and it no longer matters what I do in the present. That's what people usually mean when they use the language of once saved, always saved. And that's not what the Bible teaches, and that's not what the perseverance of the saints means. Perseverance of the saints does not mean that you will be saved regardless of what you do between now and and that day. Rather, perseverance of the saints means that the same grace that gave you life to begin the race will give you grace day by day to complete the race that you have begun. Perseverance of the saints means that God will keep you in faith by His power. Not that you will be saved regardless of what you do between now and and then, and I hope you see the difference. There's a, there's a vital distinction here. It's not that some past action now guarantees your future. It's that God's grace guarantees the rest of your life, day by day, that you will continue to walk in the footsteps of faith. Because the same God that gave you faith will keep you in faith by His power. And seeing that distinction, it allows us to to make sense of Jesus' warning. It allows us to hear Jesus warning us to examine ourselves, to see if our faith is is real, to see if our our faith is is a true and and genuine faith. We, We must not presume, well, Jesus can't be talking to me because, after all, once saved, always saved. No, we we have to hear his warning. Jesus thought his disciples needed to hear this warning. He thought all those who would hear his disciples take his testimony to the ends of the earth needed to hear this warning. We need to hear it this morning. We need to examine ourselves. We need to ask ourselves, is our faith genuine? And one of the ways we do that is by hearing the, the injunctions that Jesus gives us here. See, Jesus gives us here two signs of a true and living faith. He says, if your faith is sincere, if your your faith is, is true, here is what you will do. You can make your calling and election sure in two ways. By examining yourself, by by keeping watch of yourself, to, to make sure that your heart is not weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. And by staying awake and praying for God to give you strength to escape what is going to come. So we have these two tests, these two things that we are to to be doing. And we need to ask ourselves, are these marks of my life? Am I doing these things? Have I I heard Jesus' warning? Have Have I heard his call? Because in these ways we prove our faith to be genuine. We prove our faith to be more than mere words, more than mere profession. We prove it to be a living and true faith, a faith that has received from Jesus true life. So let us consider the two things that Jesus gives us to do. First, he he gives us something not to do. 
He says, watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and, and drunkenness and the, the cares of this life. So this is, this is what we are not to do. We are, we are not to allow our hearts to be weighed down. What does that mean? What does it, what does it mean to have a heart that is weighed down? I think you can understand the image you, you've probably had to carry a heavy burden at some point in your life. Yesterday, my, my son and I uh, carried a, uh, an island that my wife received from her mother uh, out of the kitchen down into the basement, and it weighs a lot. It, it took us a time. We had to take breaks along the way. We, we know what it is to be weighed down. When you have a heavy burden, you cannot function the way you normally do. You cannot function properly. Now, when we speak of having a heavy heart, or we speak of having our hearts weighed down, in our context, we, we often mean weighed down with, with grief, with a, with a sense of, of loss. And certainly, grief is a heavy burden, a burden that we all have, have felt at one time or another. But the word that Jesus uses here isn't limited to that. It's not limited only to the burden of grief. It can, it can refer to any sort of burden, any sort of heavy burden that keeps our hearts from functioning properly, that, that keeps our hearts from functioning as they are supposed to. In fact, Jesus mentions three burdens in particular, dissipation, drunkenness, and the cares of this life. These are the particular burdens that, that Jesus wants us to be on guard against. Now, dissipation is not a terribly familiar word. To, to dissipate is to, to scatter or to, to spread something out so much so that it, it ceases to be a thing recognizable. It ceases to exist as a, as a group. It is to annihilate something by, by spreading it so thin it is no longer recognizable. Dissipation then usually means something like scattering your resources in a, in a wasteful way, scattering your, your resources in a, in a pointless way so that they there's nothing to show for your effort. Such wastefulness is often associated with, with drinking. It's the result of, of drinking too much and, and no longer having uh, the proper control of your, your faculties. It's the wastefulness that results from drunkenness. And that's why some English translations, maybe your Bible has the word carousing instead of the word dissipation. But it's, it's the wastefulness that's associated with the second thing that Jesus tells us here, which is, which is drunkenness. And think what it means to be drunk. A person is drunk when their perception of reality is warped by the influence of some foreign substance. Their, their, their perception is warped so that they can no longer anticipate consequences and act according. This is why we do stupid things when we're drunk. This is why God tells us not to be drunk. This is why drunkenness is a sin. Because it prevents us from, from acting in a way that is in accord with the truth. And now we normally associate drunkenness with, with alcohol, but of course we know that a person can be drunk with other substances or even with other things. A person can be drunk with anger. A person can be drunk with, with lust. A person can be drunk with greed. We're told to avoid all such drunkenness. And so dissipation is the, the wasting of resources that is often the result of the altered perception of reality that we call drunkenness. And the reason drunkenness leads to wastefulness is because a drunk person assigns too much value 
to the cares of this life. That is, a person feels undue anxiety about what he will eat or what he will drink or what he will put on. He doesn't see reality as it is, but he, he sees this life as all that there is and all that, that truly matters. And when our heart is weighed down with these things, it does not function properly. We are not able to, to live as image bearers of our King. So you see the picture then that, that Jesus is, is painting He's saying that because a day of judgment is coming, we must watch ourselves. We must keep watch over ourselves so that we might not become drunk, whether literally or or figuratively. And so that we might not begin to overvalue the, the cares of this life and thus misappropriate our resources, live as if this life were all that there is. And those resources might be our our actual money, it might be our actual wealth, or it might be other things. It might be our time. We heard even in the service this morning about an opportunity about how to to use our our time this summer, whether it's at the VBS or whether it is down at New City. The question is, how are we going to use our time? How are we going to use our money? How are we going to use our our talents? How are we going to use our emotional energy? These are all questions. And Jesus says that we must guard our heart that we might not dissipate that which he has given us in wasteful spending because our hearts have been consumed and and entangled with the cares of this life. In other words, he's telling us that we must live now with an eye on that day. We must live now with an eye on eternity. We must live now like we understand that that day is coming. That this life is not all there is. It is not all there will ever be. The Epicureans famously said, Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And if they were right, if tomorrow is the day that we die, and if that's that, if that's the end of our existence, then no doubt we should seek to to maximize our, our joy and our happiness here and now. But what do the Scriptures say? Scriptures bear witness in another direction. Think of Hebrews 11. What do we read? We read that by faith, by faith, by by confidence in what Jesus himself had revealed, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of God of sin that would have come from living in Pharaoh's palace. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Why? For he was looking to the reward that had been promised by God. By faith. By faith, he he was able to keep watch of his heart. By faith, he was able to avoid dissipation and and drunkenness and the cares of this life. By faith, he was able to identify with the people of God and say there is greater reward in being counted among his people than there is in enjoying the fleeting pleasures of life for a time. We read the same thing about Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob. We're told that by faith, Abraham went to live in a land of promise. He left his homeland. He left all of his security. He left all of his wealth And he went because he believed the promise. 
He went to go live in a foreign land as a, as a pilgrim in, in tents with his children and his grandchildren, with Isaac and, and Jacob. Why? Because he believed the promise. He was looking for that city that God was going to build, that, that city not built with hands, the, the, the city that is the coming kingdom of God. And so by faith, we are to watch ourselves. We are to, to live with one eye on the future, knowing that that day is coming, believing the promise that for those who put their trust in Jesus, that day will be a day of vindication and redemption and salvation. And we are to avoid allowing our hearts to be entangled with the drunkenness that says this life is all there is, or this life is all that matters. So ask yourself, have I kept watch of my heart? Have I kept watch of my heart? Do, do I live with this perspective? Is this the perspective that, that governs my days? John Calvin says, we all throughout our entire lives want to act as though we were longing for heavenly immortality. Indeed, we judge it shameful not to. It would be foolish to value this life over the next. We, we understand that, but he goes on. He says, but examine the plans and the pursuits and the actions of whomever you wish, and you will find them to be entirely earthly. Our minds, having been dulled by the blinding glare of empty wealth, power, and honor, can see no farther than these things. And our hearts, burdened with greed, ambition, and lust for gain, can rise no higher than these things. In sum, he says, our entire soul, entangled in the enticements of the flesh, seeks its happiness on earth. This is the condition to which we are prone. This is, this is the condition to which we tend. This is the condition that Jesus is, is warning us to fight against. We must not allow our hearts to be weighed down with the cares of this world, but we must remember by faith that that day is coming. A day is coming when God will bring his kingdom, and those who are with him, those who have believed on his Son, those who have bowed to him as Lord and King, for them that day will be a day of rejoicing. But for those who have stood against him, it will be a day of judgment. On that day, they will receive from God the just penalty due to them for their sins. And therefore, Jesus says, keep watch of yourself. Do not allow yourself to be overtaken. Do not allow your heart to be weighed down with the cares of this life. But notice, his, his command is not entirely negative. There's, there's something positive to do here as well. It's not only that we are to resist the false perception, we're also to maintain a true perspective. We see this clearly in, in Jesus' second injunction. Look again at verse 36. Jesus says, but stay awake. Don't get drunk, but, but stay awake. Stay clear-minded. The image of, of staying awake, what does it suggest? It, it suggests that, that we are at attention, ready to act. We are ready to do that which he has given us to do. We are, we are ready to, to serve. We are the faithful servants doing that which we have been given 
to do. Stay awake, Jesus says, but not only stay awake, not only be ready to do what he gives you to do, but stay awake and pray. Pray for for strength to escape all the things that are going to take place. That little phrase there, escape the things that are going to take place, that can be understood a couple of ways. It it might mean to to escape in the sense of of not be judged, not receive condemnation, that you escape the, the, the condemnation that is coming on the world. I think more likely what Jesus has in mind is, is escape in the sense of endure. Not that you escape experiencing the trial, but that you escape the condemnation of the trial. You, you endure. You, you press on in faith. You press on in obedience, even in the midst of what you are called to pass through. Either way, Jesus says that, that what you are praying for is you are praying for strength to press on in the footsteps of faith. You are praying for strength to run well that race that has been marked out for you. This is what we are to do. We are to be ready for action, but we're not to be ready for action trusting in ourselves. We are to be ready for action trusting in Him who gives us strength to do all that He calls us to do. And so we are to watch our hearts, not allow them to be weighed down with the cares of this earth, and then we are to stand at attention ready to serve our King praying that he would give us the strength to do whatever it is he calls us to do. This is the life of faith. This is the evidence of a true and living faith. In fact, that's why Jesus ties this to standing, to standing before the Son. Do you see that? He he says, pray for strength that you might escape the things that are going to take place and stand before the Son of Man. Given the, the, the whole uh, context here of, of judgment and of, of the final uh, judgment, it seems clear that to stand is to, is to withstand God's judgment. It's what we sang in Psalm 130 this morning. In Psalm 130 this morning, we said, Oh Lord, if you mark iniquities, who could stand? Who could withstand your judgment? Who could not be condemned? And yet Jesus says, if you do these things, you will stand before the Son of Man on that day. But again, we're perplexed. How how could he say that? How how can Jesus tie what we do to our final standing before the Son? Doesn't he know we're saved by grace? Doesn't he know that justification is by, by faith? Well, of course he does. But it comes back to what we were saying. True faith demonstrates itself in works of obedience. True faith shows itself in a life of faith. True faith walks in the footsteps of faith. And Jesus is saying, this is what faith looks like. Not perfectly. He isn't calling us to be perfect. But he's saying, listen, if you believe in me, and if you are experiencing that that hope of glory that is to be yours through faith in me, then this is how you'll live. You will not allow your heart to be weighed down with the cares of this world, but you will be awake, ready for action, praying for God for the strength to do what he has given you to do. And if your life demonstrates such faith, then on that day you will truly stand. But what do you do if you don't see the evidence of such faith? What do you do this morning if your heart is weighed down 
What do you do if you are entangled with the cares of this life? What if you have been drunk with with greed or or lust or, or anger? What do you do? Well, Jesus tells us, pray. Pray. It is God who grants to us faith. It is is God who takes our dead hearts and makes them alive. The prophet Ezekiel said, you can no more change your heart than a leopard can change its spots. But God can do the impossible. God can take hearts of stone and replace them with hearts of flesh. God can take unbelief and transform it into belief. And so whether for the first time or for the thousandth time this morning, what is Jesus calling you to do? He is calling you to pray, Lord, help my unbelief. Grant to me the faith that I need, that by faith I, like Moses, might count the reproaches of Christ's greater wealth than all the treasures of this world. Because I know there is a day coming when God will bring to completion all that he has been doing, a day when he will judge his enemies, and when he will reward beyond imagination those who are his. Father, give me grace that I might rest in your Son, that in and through his perfect and completed work, I might receive all the blessings that you have promised to the children of Abraham. That's the prayer you're here this morning and you see evidence of of entanglement, if you see evidence of dissipation, if you see evidence of a heavy heart weighed down with the cares of this life, pray to God. Pray that he would give you faith to cling to the crucified, to stand in him and in him alone. Because the one who calls you to this, he is faithful. And he will surely do it. And because he always answers such prayers for faith, that is one reason we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we do, we rejoice in your grace. We hear Jesus' warnings. We we hear the way that he describes faith, and, and we wonder if we have fallen short. Father, may we not wonder. May we see clearly that, of course, we have fallen short. Of course, we, of course we are inadequate. But Father, our hope is not in ourselves, but in you. Give us grace, therefore, to call upon you for mercy. Give us grace, therefore, to, to pray for strength, to stand in faith. That on that day, we may receive all that you have promised to those who know and love your Son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.